joining me on tonight's show. You know him as a three-time World Series winner and one of the most indelible former Blue Jays, Mr. Todd Stottlemyre. Todd, thanks for coming on today. You bet, man. I'm honored. Uh, you you know, it's, it's an honor for me, and I just can't wait to hang out with you for a little bit and, and have some conversations. You're a great man, and I appreciate you, sir. Wow. With that kind of flattery, you know, we'll, we'll put you on my reserved list for only the best possible questions, the most lively, the most daring. <laughs> Let's get down to brass tacks, because as, as you know, this past week in particular in Blue Jays land has been tumultuous, to say the least. And I wanted to start by getting your impressions of this 20, uh, 2017 edition of the Toronto Blue Jays, in particular, what to do in a regular season where you start slowly and find yourself having to work hard on a month-to-month basis just to get back to 500. What are, what are your impressions of this team, and should fans be worried that they're off to such a slow start that historically has shown will not lead to the postseason? Well, first things first. Look, everybody loves the winner. There's no question about that, and it doesn't matter whether it's in Toronto, it's in Boston, it's in New York. You know, uh, everybody has the same concerns from a from a fan standpoint, from a media standpoint, when a team gets off to a slow start. Let me say this, that, you know, it's really just keeping things in perspective. And, you know, a lot of times we'll look at a start or we'll look at a section of the season and people are like, oh, they're not going to make it based on a week or based on a month. And here's what I would tell you. It's like, you know, first of all, it's like, you know, from an organization standpoint, from a management standpoint, from a coach's standpoint, from a player's standpoint, first goal should be right now is just get back to 500. Work like crazy to get to 500. That should be goal number one. Then at the point that you reach that pinnacle of a, you're a 500 ball club where you've got still you've got four plus months right mm-hmm. or whatever time is left i mean this thing is just getting started and then it's just about breaking it down to one series at a time and within that one series it's about breaking it down to one game at a time so you can get to a 500 club first goal number one let's get to 500 let's work like crazy to get to 500 and then at that point, it's like, let's just try to win this series. Let's win two out of, you know, two out of three. Let's win three out of four. And you, you begin to break your season down mentally, and you break your season down from a six-month season down to a three-game series, down to one game, down to one pitch. And when you start breaking the season and the game of baseball down to just the next pitch, that's when you give yourself uh, the best chance to have success. I mean, uh, Cito Gaston, you know, I remember he was famous. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I carry a speech he gave to, with me to this day. And, and uh, you know, he was a guy that didn't have a lot of locker room speeches. There wasn't a lot of locker room meetings. But when he had a meeting, I got to tell you something, you could hear a pin drop because when he spoke, people listened. And it was like, you got to know yourself, number one. And I would, my challenge would be inside that clubhouse. It's like, guys, you got to know your strengths. You got to know your weaknesses. That's number one. I remember this came directly from Cito Gaston. Number two is you better know your teammates. You got to know your teammates' strengths and you got to know your teammates' weakness. You got to know how you can count on your teammates. That's number two. And then number three, you have to know the competition. And if you can break the game of baseball down, I got to know my strengths and weaknesses. I got to know my team's strengths and weaknesses, the guys on my team <clears throat> that are my teammates. And then the people I'm competing against, you can focus on those three. Those three things from pitch to pitch and break the season down just to the next pitch. You can't believe what can be accomplished. And then, and then it's like we're not looking at a start or a week or a month or this or that. It's like, guys, the game of baseball is not broken. You know, that's the 162 games is a marathon, man. And here's what I would tell you. What if the Blue Jays right now got on a winning streak and they won 18 of the next 20? Mm. Could you believe? What if that happened? And by the way, that can happen with this club. It's not that it can't. It absolutely can with the talent they have. They could go on a run. They could win 17, 18 games out of 20. Everybody in Toronto at that point would be like, man, the Blue Jays are back. These guys are going all the way. <laughs> and the, 
the atmosphere and the mindset about around this organization, everybody would forget the slow start immediately. They would forget the slow start. And, and, of and course, that, that's just the nature of the game. That's right. And, of course, if anyone is an authority on slow starts, it would be someone who went through went through the experience with the team that started 12-24 and 24 back in 1989. Do you see any parallels between the Blue Jays of that era and the one that we have in present day in terms of what what preceded this slow start? You know, 1985 coming so agonizingly close in the playoffs. 1987, that, that, that surreal, um, tragic uh, limp to the finish line that cost them the 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 chance for the division title on the last day of the season and of course 1988 had a lot of promise and didn't quite work out now we're in 1989 you're 12 and 24 you've got your your clubhouse leader Cito Gaston whom you have been always very quick to point out how his style of leadership and mentorship influenced the players around you do you see parallels with the way John Gibbons is handling this club and the reason I ask that is you you made an interesting point. You think this team is good enough to reel off long winning streaks, notwithstanding these injuries. What makes you believe that this team is channeling some of the components or elements you've experienced when you were with that team in 1989? You know, it, it, it's hard. I'll tell you it's difficult when you start trying to, you know, parallel you know, <clears throat> one team against another team. Here's what I would tell you. Um, the only thing that really matters is what are those players, what are those coaches, what is that manager, what do they truly believe with the talent they have? You see, do they believe even after a slow start that the possibility of them winning, not only today, but winning long-term into this 2017 season and being a playoff and World Series contender, See, I would tell you the thing about 1989, even though we got off to a slow start and, you know, I was the young guy on the club, the players inside that clubhouse never lost belief. They were never pointing the finger at somebody else. There was no blame games going on. There was no, there was no garbage inside the clubhouse. It was just the fact that we weren't playing well at that time. And, you know, we all know that, unfortunately, Jimmy Williams, you know, he took the heat and brunt of our club getting off to a slow oh, start. And, yeah. You know, they let Jimmy go. Cito takes over. And from the time Cito took over, as it, remember now, don't forget when he took over, he was the intern manager. Mm. And I remember, I remember I'll remember, i never forget Cito's first day in action because on his first day as the manager, I was his very first move sending back to the minor leagues. <laughs> so... I'll, I'll, that for me, it was, you know, and I remember Cito sent, had to call me in his first day as the manager. His first move as the manager is send Todd Stottlemyre down, back down to the minor league. Probably wasn't a fun conversation for Cito. Obviously, I didn't like what Cito, the message <laughs> he was delivering to me that day. I was like, man, new manager, and I'm, and guess what? I, I got a new role. I'm a starting pitcher in AAA, man, and and, you know, I had to fight my way back, but I will just tell you that the guys, you know, because of their belief level and the ability and the talent, see, those guys today, I don't know where they're at. I don't know what their mindset is like. But, you know, if as long as they believe inside that locker room that they have the talent to win, then absolutely it is possible for them to win. No question in my mind, because they have the talent. So if I was going to make any parallel, I would just say that is a very talented organization. That's a very talented team. The talent just has to believe and go to work and break the game down one pitch at a time and not focus on what's in the past, not focus on the next four months, only focus on the next pitch of the next game. That's a great philosophy, especially when considering that... um Clubhouse adversity is experienced differently by the group of, of soldiers ready to go to battle on the baseball field. Uh, is it safe to say that in 1989 you were surrounded with the right type of, of uh, characters and, and, and dispositions around you from athletes? Obviously, you've got a, a new manager coming in who's your batting coach, so there's that familiarity. But that, that team finished with 89 wins after starting 12 games under 500. 
and you you played something yeah. like 620 ball the rest of the way, which when you calculate what the Blue Jays of today need to do in order to make the playoffs, they basically have to play near flawless 600 ball at this stage in the season. For 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 listeners to hear you say that. It'll warm their hearts, I have no doubt, but you can imagine there's a lot of fatalism out there. There are a lot of people looking at this team, seeing the preponderance of injuries, the piling of injuries, and they're saying they don't have what it takes with 117 games left to go. How do you answer those cynical types? I mean, once again, it's like, you know, we've seen it. You you can go back and look at the history of the game, and you you know that there's been teams come from you know, they were, they looked like they were at, out of it, where they looked like, hey, a key injury here, a key injury there. But, you know, here's what else I'll say is let's not forget sometimes, or, and a lot of times, a lot of times a team, when you get to the end of the year, and when a team, especially a team that wins, it was somebody that came up, or it was a trade that was made. It was somebody that nobody was counting on that ended up making a huge, um, uh, you know, uh, and played a huge role in that team winning. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll never forget, I'll never forget Juan Guzman getting called up, <laughs> and then accidentally winning ten in a row. <laughs> and because of that, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like we can go back and we can go on and on and on. But heck, you know, look, I, I remember 1989, and I remember getting sent down, and I remember getting called back up, and I remember the focus of the team, and it was. The, the point I was making earlier, it was all about win that series. Let's win this series. And, and, and it was like, all we kept doing was winning series after series after series. That's how you play 600 plus baseball. You just focus on the series. You just focus on that series. You know, look, if you, if we looked when we were, you know, 12 games under 500 at, at how, how, if we look at the percentage of us uh, you know, what was the chances of us winning 89 games? Yeah. What kind of percentage, what winning percentage will we have to have? It, it, it doesn't look good. No. It doesn't look good. But when you break it down to where, look, if we win two out of three, we win three out of four, we beat teams in every series. Let's, on the road, let's play 500-plus at home. Let's just make sure we just focus on the series. And then all of a sudden you get to the end of the year and you're like, wow, <laughs> we played 620 baseball from – a place where we look like we were in the dump. So it's mindset, man. It's the perception. It's the belief of those guys wearing that uniform. We can all be skeptical as fans. It's easy. Trust me. I'm a lot better baseball player sitting on my couch than I was in a uniform standing on that mound. <laughs> There's a, hey, listen, I'm not stupid. I mean, I see how simple the game looks. But, you know, there's emotion. There's pressure. Sure? There's all the things that are boiled down to that athlete at that time. And I'll tell you that it comes down to winning a championship comes down to the mindset that you can create. So if I was, uh, was going to give any advice or offer anything, I would be like, uh, I, I would have John Gibbons. I would just, the only thing I would say to him is, man, let's get these guys focused on the next pitch, the next game. Let's win this series and forget everything else. And don't give power to anything else. Let me tell you something. People are going to talk about injuries, and the more we talk about injuries, the more injuries you get or or the bigger the problem it is. How about let's win today? Let's win this series. That's my focus. That's what I would have. Well, and I, that's, that's great advice because I, we'll touch on the injuries front, if you will, but I just realized you didn't even have the luxury of a wild card to, to, to go after. I mean, fans forget that winning back in the late 80s, early 90s involved winning your division outright, competing with teams, and sometimes right. coming up painfully short, whereas here the Blue Jays are sitting five and a half games up uh, out of the uh, wild card slot as we speak, Again, with 117 games to go, you tell anyone in that room that they can't get to the postseason, and they're just going to throw you right out of that locker room. Yeah, man, let me tell you something. You're five and a half games out. Go win eight out of ten. Watch what happens. <laughs> go play. Go play. Go play. Go win eight. Let me tell you something. There's streaks, man, in the game of baseball, right? <clears throat> And inside of all of these streaks, bad streaks and good streaks, all those streaks are weighed out into an average over 162 games. But here's the crazy thing, and you just mentioned it. I'm going to tell you something. Just get hot for two weeks. Go win 11 out of 14. (laughs) And guess what? That five and a half games is just 
squashed to a couple games, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, the Blue Jays are contenders after all of this mess? I mean, this ain't a time to throw the throw the towel in. This is time to raise the towel. Let's go to work, man. We can do this thing. Talking baseball with Todd Stottlemyre. Todd, let's talk about injuries because um, we've, we're looking at a, a modern-day game where something like an average of 25% of total Major League Baseball players are finding themselves on the DL in, in some form or shape. And in particular, you, the Blue Jays have been absolutely bludgeoned, bludgeoned with serious injuries um, that are keeping established stars being paid tens of millions of, do- of dollars on the DL. What are your thoughts about what seems to be a, an, an epidemic, or maybe it's not, maybe you don't perceive it as an epidemic, but how do you compare these injuries and the conditioning that went into the late 80s preparation for baseball compared to what you're seeing in 2017? Well... You know, um, this isn't going to be my answer. Will probably not catch a lot of favor from the modern day player, and uh, and I understand why. Uh, but I would I, I'll say this is that uh, you know when we were when I was a player, and and I hate to be that guy, but you know you had to fight guys to get them on the DL. And and matter of fact. If somebody went on the DL, the person who replaced that person got hot. You know, the other guys in the locker room were, remember the guy Wally Pipp, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and, and, and we were like, oh, man, how's that guy, get, you know. So you had a fear. There was a fear, somewhat of a fear. You, you go on a DL and it's like, hey, you got to get back off that DL. And if somebody got hot, hey, man, that team doesn't want you back off that DL. Now, the game has changed. And where the game has changed is, you're right. There are tens of millions of dollars. And look, there are people that are like, hey, you know, the player, we're playing the player so much money from an organization standpoint that we can't take any chances on a long-term injury. I understand it. I get it. It's more, it's more business-like than versus, you know, paying somebody $100,000 and, and it's like, hey, if they burn out or wipe out, it's like, whatever. It's like, I, I don't mean it per se, it's really that way. But I'm just saying that it, that, that, that model of protecting guys and guys protecting themselves is a little bit different than, than before because the money, because the business, because the game, that's where the game has absolutely changed. I mean, listen. And, 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 and I'm not pounding my own chest. I'm not even saying it was smart to do. Um, but in, you know, in 1999, you know, uh, I remember they put me on the disabled list and, and they told me that if I had doctors told me if I had surgery, I would never pitch again in the major leagues. And I was like, well, that doesn't leave me much of an option. So I went and got into the weight room for three months. I worked my brains out and I pitched with a torn labrum and torn bicep tendon. And, and a hole in my rotator cuff and oh an older nerve that was subluxed and every pitch was painful, but I was fighting just to, just to, you know, have longevity of my career and, and, and want to go out there and compete. And, and I would tell you that I was getting paid a lot of money at that time. And I wasn't thinking and guys, you know, weren't thinking about the long term of the career. They were thinking about playing on a winner, man. And I'm not saying that's missing today because I don't want to be that guy, but I will just say that there is absolutely a difference, you know, where sometimes somebody that has a strain doesn't play through the strain, right? It's like, let's take a couple weeks off, get it better. Let's not take any chances because we're paying that guy $10 million or we're paying $20 million. So even the organization on how they protect players, it's all being perceived differently. And, and, uh, you know, those guys, I mean, I don't know the answer, man. I'm not, I don't want to claim I know the answer of how to run, you know, this. I would just tell you that there were times, and I'm going to tell you, I can remember specifically, and, um, you know, where it's like you, 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 it was almost a fight to get somebody on a DL. Nobody wanted to go on that DL. So, um, but the business has changed that. I don't know if I answered it. I, I don't mean to walk a tightrope. I just know that it's different today because the money is so much bigger. 
I think you did a splendid job of straddling the line between what are essentially two growing sentiments uh, of thought from fans. There's the fan who thinks that pitchers are being, or players are being maybe babied and coddled when they can go out and actually get the job done, i.e. playing through the pain with the kind of desperation you mentioned because you might lose your job. And then there's the other growing perspective that with these big contracts, there's a sense of entitlement. So you have a lot of players who, at the first sign of any kind of uh, threatening injury or, or, or potential negative sign of their health, are quick to put themselves on what is now a, a different DL system, a 10-day DL versus a, a 15-day DL. ESPN, Todd, was writing about how pitching culture is really having to take a look in the mirror and look at itself to understand what's happening for the future of the game. John Smoltz was very critical about the fact that in an era of power pitching and 100-mile-an-hour fastballs, the reason we're seeing a lot of these injuries, in particular to pitchers, is because they're not doing the right kind of development. Organizations aren't developing players to be flexible and malleable to be pitchers, and instead they're developing uh, cannonball uh, tossers or, or, or incendiary pitchers who are out there to just blow everyone away. How do you feel about what's happening with the pitching culture today relative to what you experienced, knowing that there's been some profound change in what we're seeing with established stars going down with the kinds of injuries that looks, look as though they're elementary and could be avoidable? Well, you know, it's a, it's a difficult subject. I'll, I'll say it this way, and I think that, and, I'm, and, I've, and I have uh, firmly believe what I'm getting ready to tell you is absolutely the truth, and that is that, you know, there are only so many pitches that a major league pitcher is probably going to, because it's unorthodox, it's not natural, and, and eventually it seems like most guys eventually break down. And that's just the nature of the beast, right? That's the nature of the game. Or that's the profession we're in. And it's like, but, here's the but. And that is, is that, you know, when it comes to pitch counts and, and this whole game of pitch counts, when should I take a guy in, guy out and, and, you know, it's very specialized with relievers and middle relief and short relief and setup guys and all of that. And, and that's all great. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, it'd be kind of like running a marathon, right? And, and if you trained properly to run a marathon and you ran the marathon, your body is still going to go through some aches and pains at the end of the marathon. But what if you didn't train properly to run the marathon? Mm. Well, your body is going to feel night and day different. It's going to go through so much more stress. Same thing with a major league baseball game. See, when I'm winning nine to nothing, or I'm winning seven to one or seven to two, the stress that I'm going to put on the next pitch, see, because if the guy at the plate takes me deep, I'm not behind. I'm still ahead. If I'm winning seven to two and the guy takes me deep, I'm now winning seven to three. So what? But if that game is two to one, right, now there's stress on that pitch. So the stress is different. It's not the pitch count. It's the stress on the pitch count. I mean, Greg, I remember Greg Maddox one time saying he threw 85 pitches. They took him out of the game, and he, and he told the writers afterwards, he goes, you know, I was spent. I was done. And they're like, Greg, you only threw 85 pitches. Yeah, but it was a one to nothing game. Every pitch I threw, had a, every pitch I threw counted. And it was like I was one pitch away from a tight ball game on every pitch for 85 pitches. That's a lot of stress. How about if Greg Maddox is winning, you know, five, six, seven to nothing? You could throw 100, 110, 120, 130 pitches, and you could win seven to nothing. You show up at the ballpark next day, you feel like you could pitch again because there wasn't the mm. same amount of stress on the pitch. So it's not the pitch count. It's the stress of the pitch count. I think that's missing somewhere. Now, I don't know, um, and, and I don't have any statistics to say that's absolutely the case, but it's like, you know, where is that guy in today's game that's throwing 120 pitches? 120? Listen, if I had a 100-pitch count when I was with the Toronto Blue Jays, I'm not sure if I would have ever pitched five innings. <laughs> really? You know, I mean, I mean, there was, I, I, mean, I, mean, I, I mean, think about it. We all remember it was like, look, I as a young pitcher, there's a lot of times, man, just to get through the first inning, I might have thrown 30, 40 pitches and go any number after any number two, I got 60, 65 pitches. And then I catch my groove and now I'm into the sixth or seventh inning. 
but I threw 115, 120, 125 pitches to be average. But mm. you're a great pitcher, you're a power pitcher. Man, when he's only throwing 100 pitches and he's winning five to nothing, and you take him out because of a pitch count, you're losing development in that guy running his race, that marathon. That, that's kind of, you know, if, if there's any spin on it that I believe that there's a theory, I would buy into that one. I'm curious, what's the highest amount of pitches you remember throwing in a baseball game during one of your starts? <laughs> I'm not even sure they kept count all the time, but, you know, um, I remember, you know, we all have our college stories. I threw, a, I threw 187 pitches one time in a game, but, I mean, I don't know. You know, there were a lot of times I threw 130, 135 pitches, maybe 140 pitches. Uh, I remember I pitched uh, in Oakland, uh, uh, probably the best game I ever pitched where I didn't win, right? I got a no decision uh, against the Kansas City Royals. I pitched 10 innings. I struck out 15 that mm. day in Oakland in 1995. I mean, you think about it. You strike Amazing. out 15, you pitch 10 innings, you're throwing a lot of pitches. That's I have no I, I have no idea how many pitches I threw that day, you know. But at the end of the day, it was like, you know, and, and that was the one-to-nothing game where I gave up a, <laughs> I gave up a home run. I mean, to a guy that's not a home run hitter with two outs in the ninth. I'm like, gee, bad time to give up a home run, but whatever. <laughs> but it's a fascinating distinction that you made between the quantity of pitches and the high-pressured qualitative mentality that a pitcher needs to have in those moments that could decide the fate of the game. And so is it safe to say that pitch counts are overrated in that regard, that there's more than meets the eye based on the aggregate numbers, and that when a fan gets frustrated because uh, John Gibbons yanks someone early or maybe lets them stay in a little bit too long, maybe we shouldn't be putting as much stock into that, given what you mentioned? Well, you know, look, first of all, guys, it's not just John Gibbons. Everyone's doing it. I mean, could you imagine Randy Johnson having a pitch limit on him of 100 pitches or 110 pitches? I mean, you, you, that would be like half of or, or, or a third of Randy Johnson's career we would have never witnessed if we would have limited Randy Johnson to 110 pitches, right? Yeah. And, and it's like I, I just look and I'm like, you know, hey, look, I would just say this, that it's not John Gibbons. It's not the Toronto Blue Jays, you know, the game of baseball. The pitch counts, I, I believe the theory on pitch counts, I believe it's off. I believe that it, it's not about how many pitches. I, I, I truly believe it's about the stress of the game. It's the stress on the pitcher. Um, so, you know, and, and I, I just know that when you put stress and you put physical and mental stress on doing an activity, your body's going to feel differently than if there's no mental or physical stress on the same activity. So if that's the case, it's not, it has nothing to do with pitch count now. It's the amount of pitches under stress. I, I believe they're night and day. It's the difference between night and day. So, so how does a Blue Jays fan today digest the full scope of injuries that have plagued their starters this year? Because let, let's face it, Todd, last year the team had one of those rare miracle years of, of, uh, of pure health, healthy free, no, not having to worry about injuries. All five starters, uh, I think, pitched at least 30, started at least 30 games, and it was one of the reasons why they played in the postseason. This year, we've got key cogs in the wheel. No one's really heard an update on J-Hap for a while. Um, Aaron Sanchez is on the DL again with various different ailments related to either his fingernails or, or his fingers themselves. And the same thing happened with Liriano, who's a veteran player. They're all different injuries, but they all seem to have happened at once. So now you've got this kind of piecemeal approach where you're basically uh, doing what you can to get through the five-starter turnover and still try to win series and, and compete, which is another daunting element to today's run uh, at trying to be a, a playoff team. How do you perceive all that? Is that just bad luck, or do you think it does attribute itself to maybe the way the conditioning staff is approaching, the front office is approaching the way they manage the pitchers, or maybe their pitchers are becoming very, how shall we say, um, proud in what they want to do, as in the New York Mets case with Matt Harvey and Noah Syndergaard. These were not decisions the organization made. In some cases, it's just the pitchers saying, let me throw the ball, and then having a poor result. What can we attribute all this bad luck to, this bad health? 
I don't know. Um, my best answer that I can tell you today on this is that, uh, you know, injuries are a part of the game. You know, once again, you know, what pitchers do is so unorthodox. It's just a part of the game. And sometimes, you know, when it happens to multiple starters, right, then everybody's looking for an answer. There must be a problem. And I would just tell you that uh, the problem is we, what we do is unorthodox. What It's a part of the game. And because it's a part of the game, when it happens to multiple guys, the fan thinks there must be a problem. There's got to be a way to create a solution here. And sometimes it is what it is. And it's unfortunate, you know, as, hey, look, a lot of times the difference between a winning club and a losing club at the end of the day is uh, the key injuries that happened or the long-term injuries of that ball club during that season. That's just the way they Unfortunately, guys, that's the game of baseball. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I know that, there are some different staffs around the league that are missing two or three starters. It's difficult uh, when when it when, you know it's starting pitching is so rare to have good starting pitchers that you think about it. Trying to replace one guy is tough. Try to replace two or three guys, and then the problem is is all of the heat now is boiled down to because because what happens next is. Now the bullpen is overexposed to what they should normally be pitching. They're pitching a lot more. So now you have overexposure to a bullpen, and then it starts to break and things start to crack. It's just the only thing I can tell you is, is I, you know, in today's game and in and, and, and any game, I guess in any era, you know, it's more than a 25-man roster. It's like when somebody goes down, who's that 26th guy? Who's that 27th guy that's going to fit in? and still help us be able to win a championship. So it's sometimes it's, it's like when you look at an organization, you look at a time, you look at injuries, and it's the, it's the beauty of having depth. And that depth sometimes is uh, there might be a guy playing in the minor leagues that on another club might be on a major league club, but because of the depth of the organization. So I don't know if I'm, I'm probably, you know, I'm not giving you a, a point-blank answer. I'm, I guess my only point-blank answer on this subject is I understand. I know injuries are a part of the game. They're all, they've always been a part of the game, by the way. They will always be a part of the game. Speaking with three-time World Series champion and former Blue Jay, Todd Stottlemyre, you mentioned depth. I'm sure, Todd, it didn't hurt in, uh, in those World Series years having not one but two type top-flight closers in Dwayne Ward and Tom Hankey. As a starter, what was that like knowing that as you got late into the game and had some fatigue and, and were trying to hold the opposition from coming back and you've got a lead, what did that mean to you knowing that you could turn over your starts to those two phenomenal bullpen players? Well, those two guys were a machine. Um, number one, they were both um, you know, best in class as far as closers in their own right. Uh, I would tell you what was really crazy is when Dwayne Ward was your, you know, was the guy that took over for the starter to to get the ball to the ninth inning to hand over to Hanky. That was kind of like if you had a if you were winning the game after six innings, you won the game. So for a starter, the sixth, the fifth, and sixth inning became kind of like their normal seventh and eighth inning they got to do everything they can that if they have a lead hold that lead and you got to almost you're pitching the middle of the game as a starter the almost the mentality as as you're pitching the middle of the game like it's the end of the game because you got two horses that are just dying to get in the ball game and those guys weren't just closers and just weren't great relief pitchers both those guys were dying they were out in that bullpen chewing on their fingernails, wanting in the game. You want to talk about wanting in the game. <laughs> Those two guys wanted to pitch every single day, man. And it was awesome because, you know, um, they made our starters better. There's no question about it. And, and, uh, and because they were so good and because teams, even when teams would play us, they feared getting to the seventh inning with us. Because they knew there was a guy by the name of Dwayne Ward that was going to be coming in and smoke coming out of his ears and, and throwing 95 mile an hour sinking fastballs, which was unheard of at the time, that were like cannonballs going up to the plate. So 
I mean, it was pretty crazy. I would just tell you that there's a, there was a huge benefit to having both those guys in our bullpen without question. Do you think uh, the present DJs with Roberto Asuna have the closer that most closely resembles your fond memories of Dwayne Ward? I mean, there were many other closers that came and went after Ward, but I can tell you not a single one ever came close to capturing um, the mystique that he brought on that mound. I mean, he was not just in control. He overpowered and overwhelmed hitters. He also, being a true pitcher, knew how to change speeds and, and, and focus on location. How does that compare maybe for fans who are wondering, what do we have today relative to what they may not have either seen or heard about 20 years ago? Well, you know, both those guys, Ward and Hanky, both I'll say, and you, you just nailed, you know, both of them had overpowering fastballs. And, and, you know, and then Wardo had this incredible curveball that he could throw. And, and uh, you know, he could throw it any, at any time. So he was, he was like, and, and it was, <laughs> when you're throwing 95-mile-an-hour sinkers up there with extraordinary movement, and then you throw this 12-6 bender, it's like, it's crazy. And then you had Tom Hankey got an overpowering fastball, and then, he got whatever he called it, split finger, fork ball. He, I think he called it his dreaded fish pitch or whatever. That's right. And, you know, guys are sw- swinging two and three times before it got to the plate. But, uh, you know, both of them were absolutely two pitch pitchers. And, you know, the power, you know, but look, here's what I would tell you. You can look across the diamond, right? And, and, and arguably maybe the greatest closer of all time, Mariano Rivera, was a one pitch pitcher. So do you, as a closer, do you got to have two pitches? I would probably say no. Does it help? Absolutely. Did those guys both have two pitches? Yes. Did the greatest closer, arguably, of all time have two pitches? Not really. <laughs> he threw a cut fastball, I think, 97, 98% of the time. So, you know, it's hard, man. I'll, I'll tell you, it is so hard to make comparisons one versus another. Okay. I would just say that. I was absolutely very fortunate to have those guys uh, coming in behind me, no question. There are a lot of times, man, and I was young. I was struggling. I was trying to find my own. I can't tell you how many times I gave the ball to Dwayne Ward, bases loaded, no outs, and he'd shut them down one, two, three, and save all the runners. I mean, he was a beast, man. He, he truly was, and, and it's interesting because there are local sentiments here with the media, with, with certain journalists who like talking about how a baseball franchise in 2017 shouldn't be spending money in the bullpen. I've never agreed with that. I've often wondered why it's it's regarded as such a blasé fact that if you don't invest in your bullpen, you will rue the day later on in the season, especially when starters begin to tire. And even if we look at the modern-day New York Yankees, they've got arguably the best bullpen in baseball, which means as their young players are developing and learning how to win in this league, they will be supported by the kind of relief pitching that unfortunately the Blue Jays haven't had a chance to see this year by virtue of a combination of injuries and certain key players leaving. How do you react to any kind of sentiment where someone tells you, Todd, put your money in starters, put your money on position players, but don't worry about the bullpen? Yeah, I'd be just the opposite, actually. You know, if I was uh, if I was putting a club together today, you know, I, I might start with, okay, if I'm winning in the 7th, 8th, and ninth, who do I got? Because I want to make sure that I win that baseball game best on having the best talent I can find for the seventh inning, eighth inning, and ninth inning. And I got to tell you that it's, it's kind of like, you know, you, you have a team that scraps and you have everyday players. Let me tell you something, everyday players, I have so much respect for them, you know, day in and day out, man, going through that grind. I tip my hat to them, 162 games. A lot of those guys take very few days off, and it's like, and they're going through the grind. And let me tell you something, what happens to an everyday player is, is, you know, they're winning through seven innings, they're fighting, they're battling, they're playing defense, they're playing offense, they're running bases, and then they have guys come in in the eighth and ninth, and, and, and a win goes from a loss day in and day out. It can be the worst thing that happens to a club. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll just tell you that there's something to be said for knowing that if if I was putting a club together, I just know that I would go for the best talent I could to find out uh, uh, to find the, the people um, that I could employ to pitch that seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. Not, not, not only that, not only is it going to make your starters better, uh, it, it's a lot more fun for your everyday players 
who are fighting to win that game day in and day out, opposite of maybe a pitcher who pitches once every five days, right? So I understand, and I understand the psychology of blowing games on the end of the day or, or, you know, teams not locking wins in uh, because of a lack of having great strength in the eighth and ninth inning. Man, that's just, that's a, from a confidence and from a psychology standpoint, it's so difficult on the club. I have this feeling, Todd, that we're forming the genesis of the Todd Stottlemyre for GM movement, uh, given what you just, no, no, what no. You just no, told me. No, we're not. So. I'm not looking for a job. Okay, <laughs> I, 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 I might start that, and we'll see where it goes from there when I, when I put out the hashtag, because I, I, I not only agree with you, but it's something that um, just started a few years ago, this whole blasé, again, notion of you know getting by without a bullpen or without key bullpen relievers, like a key left-hander or having the right kind of closer. Uh, speaking with Todd Stottlemyre, three-time World Series champion and former Toronto Blue Jays player. Todd, let's talk a little bit about a subject that's been on my mind, and I'm sure you've been thinking about it, given what's happened this past week in, in Blue Jays land. In particular, I want to talk to you about sportsmanship. I want to talk about what sportsmanship meant to you as a player in the 80s and 90s relative to maybe what you're seeing, because... I know that you follow the team and you keep in touch with the, the ins and outs, but I'm sure last week you couldn't help but follow them because they, they were on the front page of ESPN. I'm referring to uh, a very unfortunate game in Atlanta that culminated with uh, an unnecessary bat flip and, and certain uh, homophobic slurs that were tossed. And we're seeing that a lot, I think, now in baseball more than usual. What do you attribute that to? Why do you think a player gets to a point where they might do what what uh, Kevin Pillar or Jose Bautista did last week, and what should fans be mindful of when seeing that in a strong uh, postmodern social media world where everything is magnified and people debate until kingdom come? Well, first of all, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> I wasn't good enough <laughs> to make I the was, front page. I wasn't good enough. To <laughs> You know, I wasn't good enough to show off, number one. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, you know, it's funny. I have an 11-year-old son, and, you know, it's like my 11-year-old son, you know, is watching all of these guys. And, and I, I look, and, and uh, hey, there's some things that I said to the media. I had some moments in my career um, that I'm not, you know, I wouldn't tell you that I'm so proud of. They were learning lessons. I would say this, first of all, first things first. Look, there's a lot of pressure and stress on these guys, number one. So sometimes they're emotional, the way they express themselves, you know, might be heat of the moment. So let me just say that first. There are some heat of the moment and expressions that might be a little bit out of character. So I'll start there. And then I'll go to my 11-year-old son. And I remember watching my 11-year-old son and playing a game, and I'll see him do something. I'm like, and I'll ask him after the game, where did you get that? And he's dad I've seen it on TV and so-and-so. And I said, let me tell you something, son. I said, you know what cool is? You want to look really cool on the baseball field? Cool is playing as hard as you can play. That's cool. I'm going to tell you what's not cool. Showing someone up or trying to act cool when you're not cool. <laughs> mm. So I would just say it's like, uh, you know, I mean, people know me. I'm not real big on somebody showing somebody up. I, don't, I just don't think there's room for it. We're all trying hard. Everybody should respect. You should have a mutual respect and, and, and you know, for the opposing guys. I just don't know if there's room to have the, you know, Hollywood piece of the game. Now, it's okay if it's, emotional thing you know and things happen because there's a lot of stress but never to show somebody up never to badger somebody with it you know um look we would always take care of that if something happened like that it was like it was taken care of in between those lines and and uh but i just say that uh, uh first things first is i understand that there are a lot of pressure there's a lot of stress uh those guys are big names, man. They got a lot of heat on them to perform. And, um, you know, once again, I, I say jokingly, but it's the truth. I was never good enough 
to do anything out of the extraordinary as far as showing somebody up because I, I was I was just I, I was grinding to be as good as I as I could be and and competing against the level of the players. But you know, I, I I just say that the coolest game in the world is a game where two teams are battling back and forth, where two pitchers are battling back and forth, where hitters are battling pitchers. And pitchers are battling hitters, and the game of baseball in its purest form is this all-out massive action on that baseball field. Everybody trying hard. The Hollywood piece of the game, I just, I just don't know where it all fits in. I just don't think there's any room for it in the game. I would tell you that if, uh, you know, I think back to some of those older guys. I mean, you, you couldn't show a pitcher up without coming to the plate next time and him taking you to your knees, you know. It was just part of nature of the game, and and uh, but I also I also understand, and I, I kind of overlook when something happens like that. I'm like, hey, whatever. You know, hopefully they'll learn from it. I think when it becomes a habit, it's a problem. I think when it happens once, that we don't know the stress of the player, we don't know the pressure that that player's feeling at that moment when he expresses himself. So I would tell you, sometimes. You know, it's kind of like that bat flip. We all remember the bat flip, right? It was an emotional game. It was a big game. It was a huge home run, and it was the bat flip. And I will tell you, the bat flip pissed a lot of people off in baseball. But I remember thinking, it's like, man, that could happen easily. It's emotional. It was an emotional game. It was an emotional moment. And it just happened. If it was a habit and it happened all the time, that's a problem. But something that happens once, sometimes we got to just look the other way and say, all right, it happened, let's move on. But when it becomes habitual, that becomes a problem. And that, and to me, there's no room for the habit of being showboats and all this other crap. Well, it's interesting because you, you started mentioning retaliation, the unwritten rules of baseball. And it suddenly dawned on me that it shares some similarities, perhaps in hockey, during the era of the enforcer, where if you did something to the other team's star player, you knew you were going to be held accountable because the other player's goon or enforcer would come in and, and rough you up as a, as a consequence. Uh, it, the NHL gradually eliminated that, which has become a sore spot for a lot of hockey purists who say no one's really policing the game, a lot of the stars are getting hurt with impunity. Baseball has these unwritten rules which are supposed to, quote, protect the stars. But I'm wondering how you feel in an era where certain pitchers who have 100-mile-an-hour uh, arms are, are throwing at certain uh, stars' heads, for example. I think of Manny Machado and how he reacted about two weeks ago when he kind of came close with his brush, you know, brush to death, so to speak, from that fastball that he experienced. Um, how far should Major League Baseball go in protecting its players, and is it doing enough in the face of those who might be not adhering to the unwritten rules and trying to exploit them, either with too much bravado or with a lack of class or sportsmanship, which is creating a lot of these bench-clearing brawls that we've seen an inordinate amount of in the first uh, two months of 2017. Yeah, well, I, I, I would say, um, and people know my history, so I would tell you that, first of all, there's no room in the game for head-hunting. And what I mean by head-hunting is no pitcher should ever try to hit a hitter in the head. I mean, that's just like, that's really, you know, unfortunate. Now, do I believe that there is a place in the game for knocking someone down or, or protecting your team? The answer is absolutely yes. I just don't believe that a pitcher should ever throw at someone's head. Now, I'll tell you this, too. Um, as good as these guys are, you know, I'm not sure I believe anybody really throws in anyone's head. I think that, you know, they might be trying to hit some guy in the ribs or throw a ball behind their back or, or, or you, know, you know, below down by the feet, move their feet or brush somebody back or knock them on their butt. I believe that's all part of the game, man. Now, but I, I would tell you, pitches get away, and sometimes it looks like the guy was headhunting, and he really wasn't headhunting. He was just maybe trying to knock the guy down. I would tell you that I, I wish I was that good that I could pinpoint every pitch, and, and, but I'm not, and, and I don't believe anybody is. So I will say the head hunting. I understand when hitters get mad when, when a ball maybe, you know, is bouncing off their helmet or, or a ball is up around their head. I, I can understand the frustration there, I said. But 
at the same time, it's like, hey, uh, getting knocked down, uh, getting brushed back, uh, taking a ball somewhere because of something going on around in the game, it is what it is. I remember uh, I remember I got kicked out of a game, and 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 uh, and I think I, I believe I was suspended at the time, and and uh, and the commissioner wrote me a letter, and he and the letter said, Todd, he says, uh, in your in your major league career, you've been you've been ejected eight different times, you've been suspended twice, you know, you're becoming a real problem, and this and that, and I, and then I had an arbitrary arbitrary arbitration call with the commissioner. And the commissioner asked me for my response, and I said, well, I said, you know, honestly, I said, they deserved it. And he says, what? I said, honestly, the, 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 I said, you know, I'm not going to tell you I uh, intentionally threw at that guy and tried to hit him, but if the pitch did hit him, I'm telling you, commissioner, he deserved it. And he was like, are you, that's really your stamp? And I said, absolutely, that's my stamp. And I said, matter of fact, that's the way my father taught me to be a pitcher and play the game of baseball, and I'm refused to back down from it. And the guy says, you know what? I love your answer so much, I'm going to cut your fine in half, but you're still going to be fine. <laughs> and wow. I said, thank you so much. Have a great day, Commissioner. <laughs> wow. I'm like, hey, man, I, I mean, look, were there times that I had to do things on the mound to brush somebody back, to knock them down, to drill them? The answer is yes. I had to. It was and do I believe that it's a part of the game? The answer is yes. Should I hit the guy because he hits me 40 rows in the seats for a home run? Should I hit him the next time up? No. You shouldn't retaliate for getting your ass kicked in a game. But there are some retaliations when, hey, when your hitters are getting knocked down and when your hitters are getting hit, should something be done about it to let the other pitcher know if you're going to pitch inside, I need you to be more careful. So what would I do? I would take the biggest star on that team, and I would knock him on his ass, and I was okay with it. That's part of the game. That's fantastic. Uh, I'm wondering which which Blue Jay today, which Blue Jay starter today closest resembles, has the closest resemblance to the Todd Stottlemyre mentality and dispositions when it came to facing hitters. Who, which, which pitcher reminds you of you on the Jays today? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I, I that's up to the. I guess uh, for whatever. I, I don't know if that's even a good thing that somebody is like me. <laughs> but I will tell you this: that hey, I'm, and I'm okay with that. But I, I, I don't remember who it was. Now I was watching the highlights, and the pitcher was saying, "Well, come on out here, then." Who was that? Just it was like a week ago or something, and and uh, the pitcher was telling the the hitter, "I don't remember who it was." Now, and they were like, "Basically, if you don't like it, come on out here." And I was like. I like that guy. <laughs> um, I don't remember who it was now, but hey, listen, man. At the end of the day, there are there are some unwritten rules in the game of baseball, and and I believe they're there. That I believe that it's okay. Um, you know, it is what it is. You know, so well, they are what they are. And I mean, I mean, look, some of these hitters that are complaining today, thank God they didn't play against Bob Gibson. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, forget about my, forget about my era. How about that era? Absolutely. Hey, man, some of these hitters today, you guys should be thinking, you should be getting on your hands and knees and thanking God you don't have to hit against Goose Gossage. <laughs> or, or, and, and, and for, I was going to say, or some of your contemporaries that you remember, like Jack Morris and Dave Steve, I wouldn't want to face either of those gentlemen if I'm on the wrong side of their temperament for that day. Yeah, I mean, but, I, you know, I, I, once again, I don't believe there's room to be hitting guys because you're not doing yeah. your job. Look, if you're not doing your job and the hitters are teeing off on you, that's because you didn't do your job. You shouldn't take it out on them by drilling them. But it's, when an opposing pitcher, once again, when, when he's over-aggressive on the inside, he's knocking your hitters down. Hey, man, I'm going to make sure I let that guy know <laughs> that, uh, hey, by the way. And it happened to me, matter of fact, sucks if I pitch against the Orioles. And I remember I drilled a guy. I don't remember who it was. I hit a guy in the first inning. And I remember the next inning, Sutcliffe came out. He hit Candy Maldonado. I walked over to Maldonado, and he came back into the back to the bench before I went out there. I said, hey, man, that one's on me. That's my bad. And it's because I knocked that one guy down because I hit a guy. Uh, uh, Sutcliffe came out, and he, he was letting me know that you hit my guys. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get your guys. 
and Maldonado took the heat for it. And I went to Candy. I went right to Candy Maldonado. I said, "Man, I'm I'm sorry, bro. That one's on me." Mm. I said, I, "I owe you. I owe you one. You got hit because of me. And that won't happen again." And 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 then we just continued the game. There was no other retaliation. There was it wasn't needed. The message was loud and clear. We moved on and played the game. There were no warnings. There were no brawls. It was an understanding. We got it. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's, let's be real. Was I in games where there were brawls? Yeah. Was I in games in my past where I hit somebody where maybe I shouldn't have? Probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy. It's like, oh yeah, Todd, well, we remember you and now you're saying this. Hey, look, I get it. I know. I understand. Hey, when emotions are running high and you're fighting for your team, shit happens, man. Yeah, or for stuff sure. happens. I'm sorry. L- lots, stuff of, happens. lots of stuff happens. That's for sure. Uh, I'm wondering, yeah, do, you yeah. have, do you have memories of who the toughest hitter for you, one of the toughest hitters for you to face, you know, that player that would come up to the plate and you just think in your head, man, I'm going to have a, a tough time getting him out? Was there, was there any guys in particular that you just rude having to face on that given afternoon or evening? Well, you know, Canseco mm. just... Rusifat. Early in my career, he was hard on me. Later in my career, after I left the Blue Jays, I used to get Jose Canseco out. But when I was with the Blue Jays, Canseco killed me. Here's another guy, Matt Noakes. I don't mm. know if you remember the name, remember. Matt Noakes. Yeah. Detroit Tigers, That guy right? took mm-hmm. me deep. Not, yeah, he took me deep nine times. Matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. I don't remember exactly what year it was, but I'm pitching against the Tigers. I'm winning nine. It was either seven to nothing or nine to nothing. It's the ninth inning. There's two outs. Matt Noakes walks to the plate, and I throw him a pitch. First pitch, he hits the ball into the into the into the seats for a home run. Ruins my shutout. Now here's what's crazy. Five days later, I'm pitching in New York. That game was in Detroit. Five days later, I'm pitching in New York on Father's Day. I'm still it's early in my career. I'm still trying to get my first shutout. Okay, on Father's Day in New York. I'm winning like seven or nine to nothing. Again. I don't remember exactly what this was. I had a big lead. I got two outs in the ninth, and they pinched Yankee pinch hit a guy that they traded for over the last couple of days. His name was Matt Noakes. Mm. I throw Matt Noakes. First pitch I throw to Matt Noakes, he hit, takes me deep into the, into right field. Ruins my shutout. Back-to-back within back-to-back starts. Two different teams, both times his one home run ruined my shutout. To this day, man, if I seen Matt Noakes, I'd run. <laughs> just in, in the, completely in the opposite direction. You just you don't even go up to him. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like, yeah. Why, why, why do you think that is? Throwing the ball in the gap. Why, why, uh, you know, you, why did he have your number? Certain hitters, yeah, certain hitters see pitchers, you know, be- better than they might see mm. somebody else. And it's like, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird, you know. It, it is what it is. I mean, Mark McGuire, you know, I couldn't get Canseco out, but I could get McGuire out. You know, go figure, right? Um, and it's crazy. I I could I was I did well against Bonds. I did well against Griffey. Um, you know, I did well against those guys. And then I would have a guy like Chipper Jones. He just wore me out. I mean, just it is what it is. Some guys have your number. Was it a difficult process with scouting reports? I mean, you faced some primetime hitters in your day who – clearly were surging in their careers. You mentioned the Bash brothers, for example. How did you prepare psychologically knowing that you'd be facing them an average of eight to ten times in a given game? Well, you know, Cito Gaston, I I think back to Cito Gaston again, and it's like, you know, he was he was big on preparation, man, and he really taught me. And, then, you know, it, I, I, if I have one regret, you know, it was that I became the best pitcher um, that I could be after I left Toronto. Toronto never seen the best of me. You know, they only seen the beginning of me and the maturity start to grow and try to start to get better. But I really became more of a complete pitcher and a better pitcher um, after I left Toronto. But a lot of it was because of my years in Toronto. So I owe it so much to Toronto. And I owe it to people like Cito Gaston because preparation was a big deal. And and I would tell you that there were certain guys you would pitch against. You could you could get them out the same way all year long, and the hitter would never adjust. Then you would have the guys that you had to make adjustments every pitch, every play to pitch. You had to pitch them different. See, you know, I think about Tony Gwynn, you know, and, 
and pitching against Tony Gwynn. And Tony Gwynn, he studied pitchers so much, he knew every tendency. So you almost had to pitch against Tony Gwynn backwards. And what do I mean by that? And that would be like, well, if I'm thinking I should throw this pitch, I better not to Tony Gwynn because he knows I'm going to throw that pitch. So I'll do something opposite. You actually had to do that against some hitters. You know, Paul Mahler was that way. You know, Edgar Martinez was that way. Um, some hitters, you can just do the same thing time and time again. You could get them out, and, or you can a high percent of the time you can get them out. Other hitters, maybe you could never get them out. And then other hitters, you just had to switch it up. I, I don't envy the era you were in, Todd. I remember watching you battle the likes of professional, I, I say it in quotations because they were cut above the rest, I think, professional hitters like Don Mattingly and Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn and Kirby Puckett. Do you think that regardless of the number of stars that are being pushed by the, the by Major League Baseball, does this era of baseball have a, a better caliber of hitter than the one that you experienced, or is it perhaps just a completely different philosophy compared to what you encountered as a pitcher having to battle through an at-bat with these legends? Man, I don't know. I would say those names you just mentioned were ex- an extraordinary mm. professional hitters. They didn't just have talent. They worked their butts off at their craft. And what I mean by that, they worked their butts off at their craft physically and mentally. And, and um, you know, when they took batting practice, it wasn't to see how many balls they can hit in the seat. I remember Molitor, his first round in the, in the, in the cage during BP before a game, he'd hit everything to the right side, mm. the whole round. And then the next round, he tried to hit everything up the middle. And then the next round, he tried to pull every ball. So he, had a, he was taking batting practice on purpose. He had intentionality in what he was trying to do. He was not only focused physically on doing and hitting that way, but mentally he was prepared and he worked at the mental game and he worked at what pitchers were going to try to do to him in certain situations. These guys not only had extraordinary talent, they worked their butts off at their craft. Those guys were a nightmare to pitch against. And it's interesting because some of them had long careers and some of them had careers that were shortened either by injury, but all of them shared the same experience of having a stretch of of time in their baseball careers where they were simply the best of the best. And I guess as a pitcher, you just kind of hope to do your best against them and emerge relatively unscathed, even though you knew more often than not they'd find a way to get the best of you. Yeah, you know, know, we're, we're missing out on a guy from my era that would probably be in every baseball conversation of that era if he wouldn't have gotten injured. And that guy's name is Bo Jackson. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I remember when Bo came into the league, you could throw the ball by him upstairs and, uh, and you could stretch the strike zone with him. But I also knew he was one of the most gifted athletes in the world and in strength and, and his, his burst and, and how he could go from zero to like a hundred and like a step. He was unbelievable. And as he was starting to craft the strike zone and not swinging balls out of the strike zone, he became so dangerous. And that's the time he actually got hurt. And it's like, if he wouldn't have gotten hurt, well, we could be today in every baseball conversation, we could be talking about Bo Jackson, but we're not because of his injury. It, it truly is a shame, especially given that he was such a superlative two-sport athlete. No one like him before who I think mastered both sports as well as he did. I mean, there had been multi-sport athletes before, but I think Bo Jackson basically set the mold there and then broke broke it completely with what he achieved in a very short time. In major Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm talking baseball with three-time World Series champion and former Blue Jay Todd Stottlemyer. Let's talk a little bit about you now, Todd, in the present day. What should my listeners and followers know about what Todd Stottlemyer is up to and how they can learn more about what you're doing and what your thoughts are on life, the universe, and everything? Poured into this book for the people. So I hope you buy the book. I hope you read the book. I hope the listeners do. Um, It'll be... I would say that it'll be some entertainment, but it's a book that can be learned, it can be applied, and you can create whatever success you want in your life. Seems very exciting. It's a nine-point system for major league achievement by Todd Stottlemyre. Relentless success. Do it. Don't quit. 
I want to quickly uh, make sure that everyone can find you at uh, madeforsuccess.com in pre-ordering the book, as well as being able to see you on Twitter at Todd Stottlemyre and at uh, toddstottlemyre.com on the, on the World Wide Web, which is something that uh, I think uh, for fans of you and the team, this is a real opportunity to not only appreciate your experiences, your anecdotes, and I can't tell you enough, Todd, how much I appreciate it as both a fan, uh, a journalist, and a friend of yours to have you come on and let people know that there were so many intricacies and subtleties and moments of true adversity that maybe was lost along the great road to success and winning these World Series championships. But the fact remains that you've always been someone who's cared about family and self-sacrifice and focus to turn your life today into something that others can appreciate and be inspired by. And I, I truly can't thank you enough for taking the time this afternoon, my friend. Well, you know, it's it's been a pleasure. I, I'm grateful that uh, we've we've uh, kindled this friendship, and I would just tell you, you've been an asset and and have helped project and continue to project and inspire my life. I appreciate you, sir. I appreciate where you come from, your stances you take, and and uh, the way you dig to try to get the right message out, and uh, and your authenticity and tenacity in doing that. Uh, you're one in a million, and I appreciate you, sir. Can't thank you enough. And he is Todd Stottlemyer, former Blue Jays right-handed starter extraordinaire, multiple World Series champion, by his book today. Thank you again, Todd. Thank you, sir. Take care, man. Have a great day.